science. Science with me, Markham Love and Andrew Glester on uh, BCFM Radio. We are delighted to be with you again. I'm sorry I wasn't here last week, and you weren't here last week. I wasn't week. here last week either. Though. So where were you? I was at uh, the Royal Society in London for ah. the uh, announcement about gravitational waves, which was amazing. We'll come to that later. Yes, indeed. In fact, we've got the recording that you made there last yeah. week, which we'll hear later from the great astronomer Royal. Yes. Uh, Martin Rees, Lord yeah. Rees. Yes, absolutely. As an amateur Is he Lord Rees or Lord Martin Rees or Lord um, Martin? Marty, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's wonderful. As an amateur astronomer myself, you yeah. know, he's kind of bucket list, bucket list stuff to be able to talk to him. And uh, he didn't disappoint. They do say, never meet your heroes. It's, ah. it's not true. Never meet your heroes unless they're astronauts or Lord Martin. And amazing people, yes. Oh, very good. Well, that's great. We're looking forward to hearing him later. And we're delighted to have two guests in uh, the studio for this week's Love and Science. Um, they uh, both come from the Light Year. Should we call it, do we call it the Light Year Project? Is that the right term for it? Or? The charity name is the Light Year Foundation. I'm so sorry. The Light Year Foundation. We're going to hear all about it in a minute. The voice you just heard is Catherine Sparks. You're the uh, CEO of uh, the Light Year Foundation. And we're also joined by Robert Massey. Hi, Robert. Hi. You're a, a trustee and we're uh, delighted to have you both here. Katie, we, 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 we'll, I'm just going to do a quick introduction. To say things about you you can't say about yourself. All right. Um, so uh, Katie, uh, Katie Catherine Sparks is a CEO of um, the Lightyear Foundation. Um, that uh, You've been working in charity work for over 12 years um, and there are all kinds of acronyms on here for example apparently you have a CIC but I don't know what a CIC is Right, okay. And um, you've uh, won all kinds of awards, including the Outstanding Young Person of the World Award. We've never had an Outstanding Person of the World in the studio, but congratulations. That was 2012 that uh, you won that. Uh, before we, we hear from you, I'm just going to introduce Robert as well, because he's the Deputy Executive Secretary of the Royal Astronomical uh, Society, um, where you oversee external... Uh, affairs. Does that mean you travel a lot for them? Well, a little bit, but uh, not as much as I'd like. Um, I do. I do get to go to conferences and so on. Occasionally, I get to do things like go off to nice observatories, but not yes. so much in my day job as I quite like. Yes, I've done in the past, I and mean, because astronomy is a very international discipline. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, and there are some uh, observatories in rather exotic places uh, uh, around the world. Um, it says here, in your spare time, you teach your five-year-old daughter about science. You enjoy cycling, cooking, and the cultural life of your home city, Bristol. That's what very true. what she, could be better? Is she? <laughs> <laughs> Five, oh yes, so this was, yes, this, this, this is uh, slight, slightly dated, but the principle's still the same. Well, let's hear about Lightyear Foundation. Thanks both for coming in and telling us about it. It looks like really important work. Katie, just give us the lowdown on, on what it is that you do. So at Lightyear Foundation, we run a project called Sensory Science, which is all about breaking down the barriers for disabled children to participate in science, technology, engineering and maths. 
Um, most recently, we have a new human body workshop, uh, which is all about having fun with science. So using science to be able to teach some of the children we work with vital life skills, such as choice making, dealing with unexpected outcomes. But most importantly with these workshops, it's familiarising disabled children with medical environments, um, helping reduce the number of appointments that have to be repeated due to sometimes anxiety or sensory issues. In fact, our latest research showed that more than a third of all NHS appointments for disabled children have to be repeated because of not being successful on the first time of carrying them out. So our workshops are really fun, they're really creative, they help familiarise children and they're all based around the key kind of flashpoints, the key worries um, and stressful issues that, that children find. We also provide worksheets for parents and carers to help prepare them um, and help, help the parents uh, support their children in preparation and on the day as well but also looking at how we can support NHS professionals, many of whom actually have very little training in learning disability or how to, how to work with people with additional needs. For example, I think 75% um, of GPs have had no training in how to work with people with learning disability. So this work is really valuable. Um, the project so far has been a great success um, and we're, we're doing more and more workshops um, over the coming weeks. So um, give, us a, give us an overview of the organisation as, as a whole and then say how this particular project came about. Sure. So um, the Lightyear Foundation's history actually started in Ghana, um, so in Africa, um, about five years ago. And uh, since then we've grown and now we're, we're predominantly concentrating our focus on the UK. Um, our Century Science project has really grown in momentum because we found a real, a real niche where disabled children particularly are facing real struggles to get into STEM as a career. Um, but also that we have found that science is a fantastic way for kids to have fun, to tackle these, these kind of vital life skills, which is so useful, but also for us to, to, to also address real life problems such as the the burden on the NHS and, and tackling medical appointments and making sure that it's more feasible for children to, to be able to cope with them. And um, Richard, you're, you're, uh, how did you become involved with the Lightyear Foundation? Uh, Robert, but, but I... No, there is an astronomer so called Richard sorry. Massey, in case you were confused. Big apologies. Right. Sorry, that's um, a oh, Well, you know, my brain can't cope with, with uh, more letters, you know. Uh, any, anybody here with the letter R they're all they're all Richard today <laughs> we're all the same don't yeah, worry yeah, yeah. Um, no, well, apologies for that anyway to, to, to answer your question I mean I've, I've worked for the Royal Astronomical Society for quite a long time now about a decade and I've always been enthusiastic about public engagement about bringing new groups into science and making sure that everybody has the ability to access it and you know, they're not held back by um, ridiculous unnecessary barriers so I was very enthusiastic about joining Lightyear and when I joined it was doing you know, predominantly the Ghana work and it's great to see that it's shifted its focus largely led by Katie. And I think it's very timely because actually in our, in our sector alone, in astronomy, and we also cover earth sciences, so, so geophysics, we found in a survey that we've actually not quite published, so this is probably the first time I've talked about it in public, that whereas undergraduate recruitment of, of uh, people with various disabilities is reasonably strong in science physics, actually if you look at the number who progress to postgraduate level and into careers, it's really quite low, so it looks as though even if people are encouraged or able to get to university, you know, disabled people don't necessarily make it through to the next step, so I think it's very appropriate that the work like Katie's is there to actually show that there is a way forward, that it is available to everybody to encourage them to pursue that, to say nothing of actually working with various role models. Many obvious one is Stephen Hawking, but there are plenty of others too. Um, how are you funded? 
So we have um, lots of different funding streams, so community fundraising, um, corporate sponsorship and trust and grant funding as well. And um, if people want to get involved uh, to support you in your work, what, 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 uh, well, either of you, what, what kinds of things do you suggest that they do? We're always looking for volunteers, particularly to take part in our Century Science workshops. Um, we have a range of different workshops, so the human body ones I've mentioned, but we also have a fantastic space workshop as well. Um, we're looking for all different kinds of people, whether you're a scientist, whether you're, you have experience with children, um, whatever, we can definitely find a role. Um, our website is www.lightyearfoundation.org and there's a volunteering page on there where you'll find all the details and can get in touch with us. And you can also do things like fundraising events like the other week. I'd never done paddle boarding before and Katie persuaded me to do that on the Thames and I didn't fall in. It was remarkable. <laughs> I, my, my thighs were sore for several days afterwards but I didn't fall in. So. Imagine, imagine. I was just thinking about the workshops. So you, you've got the workshops for the for the children and then there's the, are they the same workshops that the NHS staff are coming to those workshops or do they have separate ones? No, so at, at the moment the workshops are predominantly delivered within special schools. So we're working with children from very little um, younger primary age children through to young adults. Um, we provide a, a work, um, sort of worksheet pack for parents, which can be taken home with tips and ideas. Um, and we're also collating our, our findings and, and presenting those to NHS professionals that oh, we're okay. working with. And we're hoping to extend that because there's some fantastic findings. Mm. I mean, even really simple techniques, um, for example, one little girl we were working with had cerebral palsy um, and she had had an EEG four times and every time it had been unsuccessful because she couldn't tolerate the sensory issues of having the EEG wires on her head. And actually something as simple as asking um, the, the the person doing the EEG or your um, paediatric consultant if you could borrow some old EEG wires and actually at home if you EEG your teddies um, or wear the little hats that you wear over the wires afterwards and just familiarise it and have fun. Role playing is a great way of of modelling with children and, and helping them um, get used to it and actually on the fifth occasion she was able to have the first successful EEG mm. and the feedback from the parent was that it actually uncovered some brain activity that they weren't expecting and actually it was quite critical that she then was able to adjust the medication as a result so something as simple as a technique like that that we can showcase with parents and I think um, and, and speaking as a parent of a disabled child myself um, Life, you know, life is hectic. It's you're dealing with issues, sleep deprivation, meltdowns, all sorts of different things. So it's it's trying to sort of have the creativity and, and imagination to come up with different ideas can be tricky. And medical appointments, particularly, are very draining in terms of time because often you're taking a lot of time off work, taking the child out of school, and attending medical appointments. So anything that we can do to help reduce that pressure for parents and carers, but also make it easier for NHS professionals really helps the, these workshops obviously take a, a lot of design and uh, a lot of attention how how do you go about that what's a how, you know what's the process for creating something like that yeah it's a really good question we um we put a lot into it so to start with we did a big research base so we spoke to i think we spoke to 50 medical professionals so a variety of people from occupational therapists physios pediatric consultants um we also spoke to 100 parents and carers um, and most importantly we also spoke to children as well 
so we pulled together all this information um, and looked at the key pressure points that children had. Um, so, for example, the appointments, waiting, um, noise, crowded areas, unfamiliar people, things like that are all key issues in medical environments, but also the actual procedures that they struggled with most. So blood tests, um, inserting cannulas, EEGs, MRI scans um, and general anaesthetics. And then we worked with two drama professionals. Um, to create a workshop where we could address all of those different things in a really fun and creative way. So our workshops are about 45 minutes long and they're almost like a mini show. We yeah. wanted it to be really exciting, really yeah. engaging. Yeah. We find that having a story that you can follow through really helps um, disabled children particularly cope with transitions. Um, so it helps take them through. We feed in lots of different experiments. Um, we have great fun. So for example, with an EG, we have an EG maypole. So <laughs> we've made it really huge and exciting. So it's very colourful we make blood potions um, all sorts of different things um, to take them through so it really helps demystify some of the key areas so they understand what's going on but also just to have fun with them and give them the chance to feel touch see um, and smell dif you know different things that they may encounter in a medical environment you're listening to uh, love and science here on uh, bcfm and uh, we are absolutely delighted uh, today to be uh, joined by katie and uh, robert from the Lightyear Foundation. We'll be here, if you've been listening to that conversation, we're going to hear hearing a little bit more about it later. But we're, we've all agreed we're going to get on with some uh, science news as well. And just uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, amazing, amazing story, amazing stories, uh, really, isn't and it? stories yeah. just just rolling in now yeah. about things happening in well, for want of a better phrase, deep space, yeah. uh, uh, where um, uh, the the news that uh, Many uh, millions of years ago, uh, two neutron stars collided. We should just say, neutron stars are incredibly dense stars. They're on their way to black holes, mm -hmm. uh, but not quite there, as, 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 as uh, I understand it. They collide. When they collide, it is massive. The, the explosion is astonishing. So much so that it has a, an incredible effect on what we call space-time, the fabric of space-time. And now we're in a position to measure that. And this is, this is something, this is your territory, Robert, isn't it? As an astronomer, we, we, we've, we've been able, we, we now know that we can measure things called gravitational waves, disturbances in space-time. Isn't that amazing? It, it sounds like science fiction, but it's, they've yeah. been predicted uh, ever since Einstein's general theory of relativity, so over 100 years. And it's probably appropriate that about 100 years after he devised the theory, we detected them for the first time uh, last year or the year before. And now we're in an era where we see more of these things. So rather than just being rather than just the detection being a novelty it becomes a tool so just as you use a telescope to look at deep space and see faint and distant galaxies this technique is another way of uncovering that things that you wouldn't be able to find otherwise yeah just extraordinary well it's 130 million years ago these two uh, uh the cores of two dead stars neutron stars uh, collided and um we have the first evidence of uh the uh, of this happening through uh, gravitational waves. They reached the Earth on August the 17th. Yeah. So um, it's about a, a month or so ago. And um, one of the things we found in the debris, when you take a look and you, you put a spectrometer, which is one of the ways we can see how, how the light is made up, 
um, what colours there are in the spectrum. Um, it turns out that there's silver, gold and platinum there. I mean, what's, yeah. the, what's the significance of that? Well, I, it, it, there's quite a lot of significance of it. I mean, it, it's... It, the way the way you know we are made of star stuff that's kind of a given now isn't it i mean when carl sagan said it it seemed a bit weird but it's just given we are made of star stuff yeah the stuff that we are made of the planet around us is made of is cooked up in the heart of stars and then kicked out into the universe in these massive stellar explosions called supernova but they aren't big enough explosions to create the heavier elements on the on the periodic table so if you look at your hand now if you're if you're married and you're wearing a ring and you look at your hand i'm wearing a ring that's made of titanium we now know that titanium is made in the collisions between neutron stars so when i stood on the side of a mountain and said to my wife yeah okay then we can do this forever it was the thing that we used to cement that meant a lot to us but now it means even more to me because of this discovery it's amazing really really amazing the other thing that i love about this by the way because i was at the uh, announcement for this on that's why i wasn't here for the show last week as at the, yeah. the, the announcement of the royal society which was a wonderful thing to be at but um talking to the scientists afterwards one of the um I hadn't realised that what was going on when they get these gravitational wave discoveries they get text messages and emails get sent out to all the astronomers at the various different observatories something like 70 observatories got messages beeps on their phones literally at the moment that they well no it's not actually at the moment there's about a a 30 minute delay I think where the person from LIGO gets the uh, the signal LIGO is the place where they detect gravitational waves yeah Yeah. Yeah. sees this um blip on their on their data and then checks it there's like a a delay while they check it the person checks that it is right before they send out the message they send out the message and then there's it's like you know the film contact with um with jodie foster and she's she gets that message and it's like panic panic everyone on the computers it's like that in real life with these astronomers of various different um uh, so radio astronomers, observ- uh, observational astronomers, uh, gamma ray astronomers, looking at their data and pointing their telescopes at this part of the sky and finding this, uh, well, this, this signal of various different signals from um, gravitational waves. So one of the uh, gamma ray astronomers I was talking to, he was dri- taking a test drive in his car, just, you know, just to bring it down to earth. But he was, he was test driving a new Honda Accord to see whether he was going to buy it. And uh, his phone beeped and he was out on this hour-long journey and he couldn't take the call, but you could see that it was a gravitational wave discovery and he wants to get straight back in the lab to start discovering what, the, what if this is the thing. And they all, pretty much when they saw the signal, they all went, yeah, this is the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And there's something like 40 papers released last monday 40 scientific yeah. papers from one discovery it's amazing so robert there's, go- there's going to be an enormous amount of data now isn't there coming through it's going to keep people busy for years i'm guessing yeah i mean astronomy is very much a big data science so you have these huge sets of it you're right that take forever to go through well not forever to go through but they take a very long time to go through and even now i mean even you know, astronomers are still looking at data from say 20 25 sometimes even 100 years ago and mining it again 
and finding new things. So it's always worth appreciating it's not just about the one hit of the discovery. Actually, the detailed analysis can go on for, for an extraordinary length of time. It's the kind of job a PhD student might get in 10 years' time. The supervisor will say, OK, over to you. Look at that data set for a couple of years because they haven't got time to do it uh, and, and find new things as a result. But my guess is that as this becomes a more routine technique, you'll see more of these things. There will come a time in a few years' time when a, a, a gravitational wave detection is no longer newsworthy because we'll have seen enough of them. The big thing then will be, well, what what is it you're actually finding out more than just the, the significance of the detection? And I guess that, you know, the discovery of the formation of gold and silver is, is a pretty good one for that. Uh, you uh, had the chance, didn't you, Andrew, to yeah. talk, as we, we were talking at the top of the show, uh, uh, about meeting Martin Rees. Yes. This was in connection, wasn't it, with LIGO? That's what you, the yeah. gravitational waves discovery. You talked to him about that. I did, yeah. He was, um, he was chairing the panel at the, uh, at, the, at the conference, the media conference, to announce these discoveries. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought with him there I should have an opportunity, I should take the opportunity to speak to him. And I began uh, by asking him uh, where he placed it really, in, in the history of astronomy. Where does this fit for you in the story of astronomy? It's clearly an important breakthrough, and I think it's sociologically very important because it shows how you can make huge developments by very precise engineering in the gravitational wave detectors, which is quite amazing precision to detect anything at all, plus also international collaboration and multi-waveband astronomy to follow up the gravitational wave signal by looking for neutrinos and finding gamma rays, x-rays and visible light and all that. Uh, I think it indicates how astronomy is a very broadly based international and multi-technique subjects, as is seen by the fact that one of the papers has 3,000 authors on it, which is about 1,400 from the gravitational wave detectors, plus people from the 50-plus observatories that have been involved in the follow-up observations. So I think it's uh, interesting, and and I think um, neutron stars, of course, um, were first discovered 50 years ago, Uh, and their discovery was really a big surprise. Uh, There was some speculation that neutron stars existed, but the fact that they were detectable as pulsars by having magnetic fields and sending a lighthouse beam of uh, radio emission towards us was something which no one really predicted. So I think the discovery was a really big surprise. And then the observations developed fast. And uh, seven years after the first discovery of a pulsar, uh, the first binary pulsar was discovered. And once we knew that existed, then, in a sense, we knew that there must be somewhere in the universe events like the one that's just been observed, uh, where two neutron stars get close enough by gradually losing energy through gravitational radiation that you get a sort of final spectacular splat when they merge, giving a black hole. And uh, the wait's been very long, but it's very uh, gratifying that at last an event of this kind has been observed and of course it's important to us as astronomers but I think it's also important for physics because this exemplifies not only the um, uh, international character of astronomy but also how astronomy provides a way in which we can learn about the properties of matter under conditions far too extreme to ever simulate in the lab and of course neutron stars supremely exemplify that in their uh, densities, their strong magnetic fields, and in their strong gravity. And so this exemplifies how, uh, even if one isn't interested in what's out there for its own sake, uh, one is interested in 
uh, testing the laws of nature, right to extremes. Uh, and we're also joined by uh, Catherine Sparks and uh, Robert uh, Massey. Uh, uh, Catherine is uh, the CEO of the Lightyear Foundation. Robert Massey is a, a trustee. And uh, well, if you've been listening through the show, uh, they've been uh, contributing and uh, telling us all about uh, what it is that they do. But I think um, uh, Katie, I'm, call, I'm calling you Catherine, but I'll be less formal now. Uh, Katie, you you uh, also run uh, astronomy workshops, don't you? So as part of our sensory science projects, um, we yeah. talked about the human body one, but one of the other ones absolutely is space-themed. Um, and I think space is a brilliant genre. It captures the children's imagination. Yeah. And it really helps us to be able to weave in some really sometimes quite challenging, quite difficult life skills that children otherwise struggle with, but in a really, really fun way. So we have a key character of, um, of an astronaut who takes them through a story. We crash land on the planet of their choice and we do lots <laughs> of space exploration. Can these be made up planets or are they, are they real planets? We have, um, we have a series of inflatable planets, which are kind oh. of indestructible. So they're oh, very right, good for okay. our workshops. Oh. Oh, great. I think that's that's a lot of the point of our, our workshop. It's very much driven by the children's curiosity. It's driven by their questions. So we're able to flex the content according to which planet that they they want to they want to go to. Um, and we crash land because we're trying to um, explain sometimes things, things don't always go to plan. And the great thing about science, which which is a, a really good lesson, particularly for autistic children, is that things don't always go the way you envisage them to. But sometimes that you know there can be a, a, a different outcome which can be better than you expect. Um, and they have a lot of fun. So in all of our sessions, they're very sensory based. So we have different smells, different things to touch, different things to play with, all sorts of different things to help keep their imagination um, and help take them through the story. So your found foundation, as we as we said earlier, is uh, has all kinds of projects that it runs. It's it's particularly committed to helping children uh, have a, any any child have a science a proper science education. Do you think that's a fair representation? Yeah, our Century Science Scheme is very much about breaking down the barriers for disabled children to participate in STEM. Um, the workshops themselves are themed around different areas with different goals. Whether it's the, the health one, um, breaking down barriers to, to making medical appointments easier for children to cope with um, but equally we also work with young adults young disabled adults um, about trying to to help break down the barriers to, to careers in STEM so I know Robert touched on that earlier um, but work experience opportunities um, and, and particularly in this particularly with the cuts that that, that that have been happening particularly in adult social care um, if you look at some of the special schools in Bristol less than two percent of, of the young adults are going on to to get employment and actually there's a wealth of great skills out there particularly in, and science lends itself so well so we're particularly looking to inspire the next generation of of, of scientists um, and and help facilitate that as much as we can and um, one of the ways, of course, that you can help uh, any any kind of charity. We, 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 we talked about giving and all of that kind of thing. But uh, there's something else, isn't there, Robert, that uh, you're looking for right now? Well, that's right. Right now, we're actually looking for a new trustee. So if anybody is interested, there's information on our website. He says hastily looking at it. I'm pretty sure <laughs> yeah, there is. Uh, we're looking for someone with a science background, actually. Perhaps it would be quite useful to, say, have someone with a, perhaps a biology background, because I've got a kind of a physics and astronomy one. So yeah. if you are interested in being involved and you can commit a reasonable amount of time to come to meetings they're held in london but you can also skype in for example then we'd, we'd really like to hear from you 
So. All right. Well, look, we'll we'll, um, uh, we'll put that out there, and uh, we're, we're just going to pick up on on our uh, astronomical theme in the show today. So we we heard uh, an interview that uh, Andrew was able to get with the astronomer royal, no less, uh, uh, Lord uh, Martin Rees. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that was uh, that was brilliant to hear, hear oh, from him. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah. I d- you know, the ro- I got this from something you said before, but the the role of astronomer royal, he said, uh, could be uh, performed when you were dead. He's uh, a very, very light touch needed for that particular role, but yeah, I mean, he's he's brilliant. It's um, I was I was talking to somebody about it, and I was trying to explain how it was to talk to him, and they they put it perfectly when they said it's almost like he's transcended. It's a bit oh, like that, you know. Oh, that's just, a bit bit religious. I, I know. Thought for Martin Rees, but yeah. there, 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 there we go. Yeah. Well. Um, just, just uh, move, moving on with uh, our uh, well, no, not moving on, staying with our astronomical <laughs> theme. Um, there's something. Uh, one, one of the stories that uh, we picked up this week is about the fact that our galaxy doesn't seem to be normal or typical. No. What? I mean, what shame, do you know about this? Um, I, I don't. What, what, what do you know about this, Andrew? I, I know literally done? everything about it. Of course, I do. Um, <laughs> I don't. But I, I, as I understand it, we've we've got surveys that, um, that that survey the galaxies, and there's a lot of galaxies, obviously, in the in, in the night sky, and oh, well, they're in the day sky. We just can't see them as well then. And um, it, our astron, uh, sorry, our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. So if you looked at it from above, it would look like a spiral. We've all seen pictures of that. Um, well, they're not photographs, obviously. We haven't been outside our galaxy to take the photographs. But um, it's a spiral galaxy. But we also have these satellite galaxies, so little galaxies off our galaxy. Um, we don't really see them in the north. Well, we don't see them in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, you would see the, the I think they're referred to as the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. Robert's nodding, so I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing all right. And... Um, and We've done a survey of satellite galaxies around, I say we, astronomers have done a, 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 a survey of satellite galaxies around other larger galaxies and found that in pretty much all of them, um, there are new stars being formed quite dramatically, a lot of them, if you know what I mean, a lot of them in these, in these satellite galaxies, whereas our satellite galaxies are very, very quiet. There aren't these new stars being born and... We don't know why that would be. Mm. And is that because we're not able to look uh, so clearly at other galaxies? Or are we? I mean, uh, can we see a clear contrast between what's happening in the Milky Way galaxy, our home galaxy, and other galaxies? Um, but we can see that the stars are being born in the uh, satellite galaxies of other galaxies, and they aren't being formed in, in our galaxy. I think one of the main problems for us if our galaxy isn't typical is that we can't study our galaxy in some respects we can't study our galaxy and then extrapolate from that from our sample size of one and say that galaxies are like this and behave in this way galaxy formation happens the way that it does here because it doesn't seem to be the same in these we don't know why it is it's possible and and to be clear it's it's just a a part of galaxy formation we're not throwing out all our ideas of galaxy formation yeah. out the window because of this but there's just there are some things which are certainly not normal as you would see, as you would yeah. as we look out on other galaxies we're seeing that our galaxy behaves differently too. robert is this something you've come you've uh, come across? well I, I was saying to andrew earlier on um, i don't know enough about this story as i should but th- when you look at the the milky way it's it's, 
it's a barred spiral galaxy. You've got a bar in the centre and arms wind out. And then the, the satellite galaxies you're referring to, there's a fair number of small ones. There's even one that's thought to have collided with the Milky Way quite a long time ago as well and sort of enmeshed in it um, actually on the other side of the galaxy. Um, but I think Andrew's right in the sense that it's very difficult to study it from the outside because it's vast. We have absolutely no means of travelling to that position. So we do rely on this internal perspective and that can distort our ideas a bit as well. So you may get some effects there that are, are not making it very clear. And there are also things like if galaxies collide which sounds very dramatic actually it's very unlikely that any of the stars would because they're so far apart even when that happens they just mesh together but what can happen is that you strip out some of the gas you need to make new stars so you need lots of hydrogen and helium and, and actually quite a bit of dust and so on to allow star systems to form if that's stripped away then some of the raw materials removed so you might be looking in effect like that in some bits of the galaxy but there, I mean, there are still stars being formed in the, in the milky way and if you look out on a winter's night at the uh, the nebula in the orion nebula if you look on a star map or, or look up on the internet to see where it is you can see an example of that uh, but it, it may just be that our galaxy is slightly unusual in that respect that that formation of new stars isn't quite as uh, as vibrant as it is elsewhere that said i don't you know it's not something to trouble you about the future of the galaxy because we've still got at least 100 million years of life left on earth as the sun gently heats up and many 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 millions of stars in the in the milky way if ever we develop the ability to go there instead and it won't affect the sale value of our galaxy at all <laughs> not unless you're uh, you're well if you want to try and sell it there'll be an i'll put it on ebay we'll see what happens so. i'd buy it it's amazing <laughs> now what was we're, again we'll stay with that uh, uh, cosmology, except uh, we're, we're going to uh, move on to um, biology and space, really. And uh, you, uh, Andrew, again, managed to uh, interview Nicole Kaplan, who's uh, been on this uh, show before. Uh, she's up at UWE, and uh, they also have there a thing called the Envirotron, yeah. which sounds fantastic. Straight out of uh, uh, Captain Scarlet and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yes, or Thunderbirds it's, or something. It's a very high-tech greenhouse, but if you call it in an Envirotron, yeah. then I'll come and see it. That's how it works. <laughs> so tell us about this interview. Um, well, um, as I say, um, UWE have this this very high-tech um, greenhouse called the, the Envirotron, which has just been opened on the French A campus in Bristol. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, new facility for the scientists there to study plants of various different forms. Um, I, I'd walked away from there with a plant which is now on the windowsill of my house, which was uh, the seeds came from the internet. Well, went up to the International Space Station with Tim Peake, came back down with him. So that's incredibly exciting. But I went to uh, see the Envirotron and spoke to, as you say, Nicole Kaplan there. We are stood at the new Envirotron at the University of the West of England, Bristol. It is an enormous greenhouse with state-of-the-art technology ideal for growing all sorts of plants for experimental purposes. So in front of me, I can see Rocket with ISS written on it. Nicole, what's this all about? So these are seeds of rocket lettuce that have been sent up to the International Space Station for a six-month stay and then were flown back down to Earth with astronaut Tim Peake. You've got a control group and the ISS group, which is, you know... It's not every day I look at seeds that have been on the International Space Station growing into plants. Are you seeing any difference between them? Well, when thousands of school children across the UK grew these plants from seeds, there, it was found 
after statistical analysis that the seeds that had been flown in space didn't grow as well as the seeds that were on Earth. So what I'm trying to do is to replicate that experiment again and then look at a few more details. In the Envirotron, we have state-of-the-art technology for hosting a whole range of experiments. We have almost total control over growth conditions. We can control ventilation, we can control temperature, humidity, and also the light regime that the plants grow under. Okay, so as we look around the greenhouse, there are, are different zones, which are, excuse the temperate zone, the tropical zone, containment zone, and the prep area. And then there's this larger space. We will be using this main area for teaching uh, predominantly, and the sections that you've just been talking about are our research zones. So in each one of those zones have different conditions, so different temperatures, different light regimes. For example, the containment zone is our dedicated chamber for GM plants, and that's why it must be kept separate. I feel a bit like, you know, the Martian from the book by Andy Weir with Matt Damon. Matt Damon yeah. And he's got that, he's got those habs on Mars. I feel like this is so kind of high tech that I could be, if I looked out the window and there weren't those trees there, it was just a Martian landscape. This is what I would like to see built on Mars so that we could grow plants and start setting up a habitation there. Well, to get an idea of what it would look like if you visit at night when the red lights are on, it uh, looks pretty spectacular. Okay, I'll be back tonight then. And that was uh, Nicole Kaplan uh, talking to uh, our very own uh, Andrew Glester uh, at the Envirotron at uh, UE. So, yeah. excellent. I didn't go back, by the way. I don't think <laughs> you, you didn't? No. Oh, I wish I w maybe I will go back tonight and see whether it is really like being on Mars. Yes, indeed. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, one day all these things are actually going to happen for real. Yeah. So, uh, um, so we're nearly at the end of uh, our show and uh, what, we, we don't have time this week to uh, talk about uh, everything we want to talk about, which is always a good thing. We always cram the programme with uh, science news. Um, but uh, just before we do go, um, do you know why, this is to all my uh, guests here and Andrew as well, do you know why it's not a good thing that our windscreens are covered in insects as they used to be. Anybody got any thoughts about this? Oh, I'm joined by we're joined by John Ford as well for uh, getting Bristol home. Any 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 idea? Are you saying because there's less of them around? Yeah, uh, apparently this is shocking. Um, there's been a survey done, research at more than 60 protected areas in Germany, suggesting that. Um, probably Europe-wide, flying insects have declined by more than 75%. Three-quarters of them have gone in the last 30 years. Where have they gone? They've died. They're just, they're just not, <laughs> not flourishing. Right. Just not is there. this down to pesticides, maybe? It could be pesticides. Yeah. The, the, the study is saying that we don't know. Okay. We, we, we actually... We, we know that there are 75% fewer flying creatures uh, of this, uh, you know, insects, midges and bugs and mm. so on of, ver of various sorts. We don't know why that is. And it's actually very, very worrying because um, our ecosystems are 
so incredibly finely balanced. Well, where I live, the uh, the bin collections are going to fortnightly, so I'm sure that'll sort that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Well, we'll, we'll pick up on that in, in, in another show. So, as I said, as you could hear, uh, John Ford has joined us from uh, Getting Bristol Home. So don't forget, when you finish with us, you'll hear the news and then stay tuned uh, for for John. What did we miss out this week, John? Um, but there's lots of things you could have missed out on. But is, is anyone around the table had any work done? I mean, plastic surgery. <laughs> no? Uh, no? I mean, Can you, you tell? I, mean, <laughs> I thought that was obvious. Well, Malcolm, you, you look, <laughs> I was going to say, you don't look that young, but na- by natural means, Malcolm. Sure. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Well, this day in 1814, the, the very first plastic surgery was performed. Did you not know? Oh. Um, it was at uh, the Duke of York's Hospital in Chelsea. The surgeon was a fellow called Joseph Carpoo. Um, he'd read a letter by another British surgeon in the then-called Gentleman's Magazine. Uh, Gentleman's Magazine these days is a slightly different meaning, yeah. which um, described a successful procedure performed in India, whereby uh, the forehead's uh, flap was used to reconstruct a man's um, mutilated nose. Uh, apparently it was um, originally written in Hindu text some 2,600 years ago. And the text described various reconstruction techniques. So um, this fellow, having first practised on several corpses, operated uh, on a British military officer by um, restoring his nose, which had been uh, destroyed due to the toxic effects of mercury treatments. And another fellow who was uh, mutilated by a sword. So happy birthday, plastic surgery. Do (laughs) Do we know if they did a good job or not? I don't know. But it was the first attempt, so, you know, we are where we are now. Uh, (laughs) Where where would, you know, various procedures be without this? (laughs) Well, look, thanks, John. Stay tuned uh, for John getting uh, Bristol home uh, after this, after the news. Uh, It's been great to have Robert Massey, Katie Sparks with us, uh, and um, uh, from Andrew Glester and from me. Have yourselves a very good evening, and uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you.